I've been out of the pulpit for an extended period of time, and um, I know some of you might be under the impression that I had a very long and relaxing vacation. I did not. Uh, But uh, I've been uh, fortunate enough and very grateful for the fact that, uh, well, even before I took on the lead pastor role here, the elders commissioned me to pursue a doctorate of ministry, of which I am still currently pursuing. Uh, But I think I've rounded a corner to where I'm on the home stretch. And um, uh, I'm writing a dissertation right now, and I finally have gotten through my first draft. (laughs) So... So that is, when I'm not preparing for sermons, basically I, I have been uh, granted and really gifted with some time to, to write and write and write some more. So I'm very much in the books. I'm very much staring at a screen. I'm still doing a lot of other pastoral duties, but I'm just not here. And I'm really appreciative of my dear brother, Pastor Mike, and also Pastor Tom, uh, filling the pulpit so faithfully, and I know you've been richly blessed as a result. But I do love the fact that I get to be back here, and I'm very grateful to wrap up the the Sermon on the Mount here with you this morning. Uh, Before I do that, however, I do want to show you a picture that may or may not be familiar to you. Um, Hopefully you have that dubbed up here. How many of you recognize that picture? Maybe not because you had been there firsthand, and know your eyes are not deceiving you. If you're wondering if the picture was just created in a crooked way or they edited it in some way. They did not. This is the Tower of Pizza. P-I-Z-Z-A, right? No, it's P-I-S-A. But now it's classically known as the the Leaning Tower of Pizza. In fact, actually, this tower has always been leaning. From the moment it was actually, they broke ground, this tower has been plagued with trouble over and over and over again. The construction on this tower began in 1173, and 226 years later, they finally completed the construction. And you might be wondering yourself, are they just really slow? Maybe. I don't know. Is it just because it's such fine craftsmanship that it takes so long? Perhaps, to some degree. But the reason why it it took 226 years, and even to this day, they are still engineering ways in which they're keeping this thing from continually leaning over, because the leaning tower of Pisa was not built on rock. In fact, Pisa means marshy land, and they only dug 10 feet down. Most of your houses probably have a better foundation. Most of your mobile homes have a better foundation. But the Leaning Tower Pisa, a, a monstrous building of that size and weight, was only dug 10 feet down, and from the beginning, it, it, it was always started crooked, uh, becoming more and more crooked, started leaning and more and more. In fact, it's, they say it's about 17 feet out of plumb for you builders in the room that know what that means. And you might be going, well, why in the world is this so crooked, and why does it continue to keep falling over, and one day they will say it will eventually fall over. They've uh, maxed out their engineering capabilities. Maybe they'll come up with something. I don't know. But the reason is, as I kind of said in the beginning, the reason why the Tower of Pisa is leaning and will one day fall is because it was built on a faulty foundation. Someone should have told the Elwha Bridge makers about that. We come to the end of our final passage in the Sermon on the Mount. 
And this is really the longest and uh, the first but the longest recorded sermon in Matthew's gospel that, uh, that he records of Jesus and his addressing of people. And I think, I don't know about you, but this sermon has been rich. This sermon has been weighty. This sermon has really brought out a number of different topics that have uh, penetrated our hearts. Uh, things such as this, that we, had, that we had the Beatitudes, and each Beatitude is a very profound but simple statement that really gets right to, it kind of cuts to the heart of our lives. We see that Jesus says that we are the salt and light of the world, that he says, that he says he, he's the one that came to be the fulfillment of the law. In fact, Jesus himself even uh, re-clarifies the intent of the law because he makes statements like this, you've heard it said, but I tell you. In other words, you understand the law, you understand God's commands in this way, but let me help you further understand, let me further clarify what the true intent of the law is. And Jesus really drives home and exposes the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and really the hypocrisy that can be true of our lives. He teaches us how to pray. He teaches us that we need to trust in God for all things. He teaches us how to judge rightly. He shows us to persistently pursue him in prayer. But now Jesus wraps up his sermon with a series of comparisons. In other words, his entire conclusion to his sermon is a series of comparisons that are really uh, intended to be very black and white. Jesus is purposely not trying to have a, a gray area. There's not an option C in these scenarios. And so, for example, Jesus talks about two different gates. He says wide or large and wide is the gate and wide is the path that leads ultimately to eternal destruction. On the other hand, narrow is the, is the path that leads to eternal life. Unfortunately, he says most will take the easy path. Most will take the wide path that leads to destruction. Secondly, we see another comparison between two trees. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree produces good fruit. Then we have two disciples. A false disciple does not enter the kingdom of heaven because they do not do the will of God. But a true disciple enters the kingdom of heaven because they actually do the will of God. Now, we must understand that the purpose of these comparisons, the purpose of these contrasts is so that everyone, especially his hearers, especially you and I who are in the church, that we would honestly evaluate the basis of our salvation. The intention is that we would ask the sobering but necessary question something like this, how do I know I'm truly saved? How do I know I'm truly saved? How do I know that I'm truly a disciple of Jesus? On what basis or what evidence, what marks must be true of my life in order to be assured that my salvation is genuine? We cannot miss this, however, because Jesus is not talking to the pagans and Athens. He's not like the Apostle Paul here uh, talking to a bunch of philosophers. He's talking about tho to those people who think they are already in God's good graces. He's talking to people who already think they're accepted by God, who would classify themselves as already in the church. He's talking to those who have already professed faith 
in God. He says, how do you know your faith is real? This kind of resonates with what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13 when he says, examine yourselves. Test yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And so he gives us some very clear comparisons so that we might actually in turn ask the question, am I a person who is choosing the easy path in life? Am I a person who is ultimately living for my happiness? Or am I a person who is maybe pursuing the road less marked, but that ultimately leads to eternal life? Or perhaps we might ask ourselves, am I bearing fruit, good fruit for the kingdom of God, or am I merely doing my own will? Am I seeking to do God's will, or am I seeking to do what I want in life? It's all about what I want. Well, Jesus gives us one final comparison here in the form of a parable. And the point that Jesus is going to drive home for you and us this morning is this. Following Jesus means to obey Jesus. Following Jesus means to obey Jesus. In other words, a true Christian, a true follower of Christ is one who is obedient to Christ. We see that obedience, according to Jesus, is not optional, but is foundational to what it means to be a Christian. Before we jump into the application, or before we draw application from what Jesus is teaching us here this morning, let's first kind of unpack this parable and make some observations about it first. I'm going to read the text for us again, since it's very short, and then let's, let's draw some observa- get some observations out of it. Verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat upon that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not, and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. I think there's a couple of observations we can make before we even unpack this parable here. First of all, uh, it may not be true of your translation, but uh, many translations, and in, actually in the original text, we see that the, the, this passage starts with a big therefore. It's kind of implied in here, but it starts with a therefore. In other words, what Jesus is saying, after everything I've said to you, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. Now, I, I know that most of you understand that, but for the sake of redundancy, When you see therefore, there's two indications, there's two things that it ought to kind of evoke in your own reading. First of all, you're called or kind of encouraged to look back. When you see therefore, you're supposed to look back and go, and what has it just been said? And secondly, it helps you to look ahead because Jesus is just about, or whoever's talking is just about to say, here's the point of it all. Here's what I'm getting at. Here's the application In other words, the therefore transitions us from the what to the so what. The therefore transitions us to to, to a so what, 
And we see that every so what demands a response. In other words, now it's decision time. This is what Jesus is decision time. I think a second observation we can make from this is that when Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine, he is emphatically stating that everything he has just said is inseparably linked to his authority and presence. How about that for a mouthful? Let me just say that again. When we see that Jesus says, anyone who hears these words of mine, what he is saying very emphatically, very matter-of-factly, he's saying, what I've just told you, everything I've just taught you is inseparably linked to my authority and my presence. This is why the people respond at the very end when he's done teaching. He says, and when they finished these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The point that I'm trying to make here is this, and I believe that Jesus is alluding to here is this. We are not expected to just listen to anyone's voice. We are not expected to follow anyone's voice, but we are expected to listen and therefore follow the voice of Jesus. Because only Jesus is the one who has authority. Thirdly, the emphasis of Jesus' final exhortation focuses on our doing. He focuses on our obedience, and I'll revisit that point in just a moment. I think when you look at this parable very quickly, we can make some, uh, some observations about the similarities between these two builders, right? You look at the guy who built on the sand, look at the guy who built on the rock, Really, there's a lot of similarities between these two builders. We see that both builders heard the words of God. They heard the words of Jesus, so it wasn't that one was ignorant and one was not. Both heard the exact same message. Both were building houses. Both houses were, we can assume, were built kind of in the same location. In fact, we can even safely assume, if we were to kind of take liberty here, both houses were built exactly the same. They were cookie-cutter houses probably. You know, and they were just built kind of in the same area, the same geographic region, uh, the same weather. Everything was pretty much the same. We could safely conclude that they're identical. There's nothing different about these two houses until, until the storm comes. Everything on the surface seems exactly the same. All the same materials, the same look, the same construction, the same builder maybe in a sense. But it wasn't until the storm came that it had exposed a radical difference. It wasn't until the storm came and beat upon the house that it, it revealed a drastic difference between the two houses. What was the difference between both houses? Even though everything on the surface looked the same, the difference was the foundation on which the house was built. The house that was built on rock was secure, immovable, and it endured. Conversely, the house that was built on sand was unstable and vulnerable, and ultimately, it fell. As Jesus says, and great was the fall of it. Therefore, we see that the, the builder who built upon rock was deemed or referred to as wise, and the, and the builder who built upon sand was referred to as foolish, 
And what Jesus is really trying to get at here through the form of a parable is to help us understand this. The house represents our lives. And here's the deal. Everyone is building a house. If you are alive, you are building a house. The rock represents a person who is wisely building their lives by by hearing the words of Christ and also doing what he says. Conversely, the sand represents a person who is foolishly building their lives by hearing the words of Christ but not following through with what Jesus says. And really the implicit question that we, that we see kind of raised here is this, on what are you building your life? What kind of foundation are you building your life upon? What Jesus is saying is he's saying a wise person builds their life on a secure foundation of obedience to his words. But the foolish person builds their life on a destructive foundation of disobedience. Remember, everything's the same on the surface. Everyone heard the words of Christ. Everything was, in a sense, normal and the same except when the storm came and when the storm came, it revealed what was actually true of both builders. The difference was who followed through, who obeyed, who did what they knew to be true. So I ask you, IBC family, are you a Christian who seeks to obey the words of Jesus? Are you a Christian that actually seeks, by God's grace, to obey the words of Christ? Or are you a Christian who is content with merely knowing what Jesus says, but has no intentions of acting on what he says. Let me say it this way. Are you a professing believer who knows the right thing to do and does it? Or are you a professing believer who knows the right thing to do and does not do it? Let me take it one step further, or who is content with partial obedience. I think there's four points of application I want to draw from Jesus' final parable and really the conclusion of his sermon. The first point of application is this. Jesus as Lord and Jesus as Savior are inseparable. Jesus as Lord and Jesus as Savior are inseparable. Luke says this, Jesus says in kind of Luke's gospel account of this parable, Jesus starts the parable in this way. He says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you profess, and the Lord, Lord is really an emphatic Lord, Lord. We're all in. We love you, Jesus. We're Christians. We're sold out and not do what I tell you. In other words, it's hypocritical to affirm a relationship with Christ and at the same time not do what he says. I appreciate what Nick Ripkin says. Jolene Erlocker kind of sparked me onto the Nick Ripkin stories. I love that book. 
Nick Ripken says this in his book. He says, it is simple, um, it's, a, it's a simple matter of obedience. If he is our Lord, then we'll obey him. And if we do not obey him, then he is not our Lord. It's pretty simple. You can actually take it one step further. If he is not our Lord, then he cannot be our Savior. Let me say that again. If he is not our Lord, then he cannot be our Savior. The point that Jesus is seeking to drive home is that yes, on one hand, it is necessary that you come to Jesus. There's no salvation in any one person. There's no salvation in anything else except Jesus Christ. That is very true. But it is equally necessary that as people who come to Jesus, that we are equally obedient to Christ. Because if Jesus is not both our Lord and Savior, then you do not have saving faith. The second point of application that Jesus is desiring his hearers to fully understand is that obedience to Christ is one of the greatest assurances of your salvation. Obedience to Christ is one of the greatest assurances of your salvation. Listen to the words of the Apostle John in 1 John chapter 2. He says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Listen to, listen to what Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10 for those who uh, go on sinning as if it doesn't matter. Listen to what Hebrews says. His dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only a terrible expectation of God's judgment and a raging fire that will consume his enemies. What are we getting out here? What is Jesus stating in a very sobering but necessary way? He's basically saying this. You can ask Jesus into your heart and still go to hell. Think about that. In fact, you can be an active attender of this church and still go to hell. You can be baptized and still go to hell. You can be faithfully serving in some ministry and still go to hell. How can I make such bold statements? Well, as Jesus says, genuine faith is obedient faith. Genuine faith is obedient faith. And the greatest assurance you have of your salvation 
is that there is a pattern of obedience in your life. Now you might actually object at this moment. No one's walked away yet. Oh, there we go. Just kidding. (laughs) Just kidding, Mary. (laughs) You may object and say, Aaron, I, I, I thought we were saved by grace. I thought we were saved by the grace of God and not by works. I thought we were saved by God's grace and not by our doing. And if that is your conclusion, then yes, you are correct. You are very correct. We are only saved by the grace of God. There's nothing you and I can do to make ourselves acceptable to God. We are completely unable, as as Paul will say in Ephesians, we are dead in our sins. Dead people can do nothing. And so that we are fully dependent upon God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's why Paul will say in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, but it is a gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. Or you know the classic John three sixteen, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Those are true statements. They are scriptural statements. They are the words of Christ. We believe them. We are, our, our salvation rests secure on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It is the grace of God that saves, uh, saves us. It is the love of God that pursued us and we rest in that fact. But... We must also read the verses that follow. Because we can read Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for example, and say we are saved by grace through faith and that it has nothing to do with our works. And then Paul has the audacity to say in one verse later, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or listen to the last verse of John chapter 3. We have, yeah, John 3, 16. We know that verse. It's probably the first verse you memorized. But then listen to John 3, 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Yes, he just said that. But listen. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. You see that Jesus doesn't give an equal contrast here. He says, he does, he says whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not believe does not have eternal life. No, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey will not have eternal life. In other words, let, let us understand more fully what belief in Jesus Christ actually means. Belief in Jesus Christ is not a mental assent It's not a a cognitive acknowledgement of what is true, but belief is translated in our action. Genuine belief is translated by the way in which you and I live our lives faithfully. It's interesting, the Greek word to know, gnosko, to know means to act on what you know. And if you don't actually do what you know, then you don't actually know. So in the same way, Jesus says to believe in the Son, to have eternal life, means to obey the Son. So on one hand, yes, we are saved by grace. And Jesus is not teaching a salvation that is dependent upon works, but he is also not teaching that works are unimportant or even optional. 
As James himself will say in James chapter 2, he says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone says he has faith and does not have works? Can that faith save him? Rhetorical question, no. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. For the body apart from the spirit is, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is why Jesus says in the previous passage that Pastor Tom preached on at the picnic, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The greatest assurance of your salvation is your obedience to Christ. Third point of application, obedience to Christ shows our love for Christ. Very quickly here, we see that Jesus says in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. A chapter later, John 15, 10, he says, when you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. The opposite, or conversely, we could say that it's hypocritical to think that I love Jesus and not do what he says. Fourth and finally, hardships in life reveal the genuineness of your salvation. Hardships in life reveal the genuineness of your salvation. Specifically, how you respond to hardships. It's interesting to note that one reality that is absolutely certain for each and every one of us in this room is this. Difficult times will happen. You will experience hard things. You will be in seasons that stretch you beyond anything you've experienced up to this point. Notice when we look at the parable here, it doesn't say if a storm comes. It's always implicit when a storm comes. The trials in life, the hardships in life, difficulties in life, even whether it be for your faith, as Jesus promises, you will be persecuted as I was persecuted. A servant is not greater than his master. Or it's just the fact that we live in a fallen world and sin still affects our lives in various ways. The fact is, we will all experience difficulties. It's not a matter of if, but when and to what degree. And in this parable, we see that both houses, as I said before, are identical. On the surface, everything's to be the same. We might translate that in this way. Both people went to the church. Both people had multiple Bibles. Both people took part in a Bible study. Both served in some capacity. Both wore a cross around their neck or had it tattooed on their arm or whatever. But it wasn't until a storm came that it revealed the foundation of both houses. And I believe in the same way, trials of various kinds are very telling of the kind of faith that we have. Struggles and hardships reveal the quality of our faith. They reveal the, maybe where our confidence truly is. They expose our insecurities and our fears. But they are also, we see in Scripture, used by God to grow our faith. As James will say in James chapter 1, Brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity of great joy. 
For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. But trials can also reveal whether your faith is real or not. Trials can reveal or expose whether or not your faith is genuine or not. As mentioned earlier, you can appear to have it all together. You can convince everyone that you are sold out for Jesus Christ. You can even convince yourself that everything is fine in in regards to being accepted before God. But if you are not building your life on a foundation of obedience, then you cannot have assurance of your salvation. Yes, Paul says at the end of Romans 8, nothing can separate me from the love of Christ. And Jesus also says, if you keep my commandments, you remain in the love of Christ. To follow Jesus means to obey Jesus. But here's the deal. And Jesus himself teaches this throughout his entire sermon. As much as you try to obey, we all fall short. As much as we are eager to do the right thing, we still mess up. We still fall short. John says this in 1 John 1, eight. if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. So on one hand, we see that genuine faith is obedient faith and at the same time, we also see that it is impossible to perfectly obey. And brothers and sisters, this is what makes the gospel of Jesus so magnificent. This is what makes the gospel of Jesus and his death on the cross for us so amazing. It's what makes his resurrection so profound. Because your salvation ultimately doesn't depend upon your performance. It doesn't depend on your perfect obedience. It depends upon the perfect obedience of Jesus. That's why Jesus says the very first statement of his sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. Remember, the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit understand their depravity before God. The poor in spirit understand that they are unable to do things perfectly. They are unable to, to, to meet the standard of holiness that is required for their salvation. And therefore, the poor in spirit throw themselves at the mercy of God and say, God, I can't. And Jesus says, I know, but I can. So brothers and sisters, on one hand, Jesus says in a very sobering but necessary way, obedience is expected. Obedience is demanded. It's just, It's mandatory. But on the other hand, we also understand that our salvation fully depends 
upon the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. And so we rest in the perfect performance of Jesus Christ.